0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at On the Record, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at
1: gmail.com. So I was down in Orlando last week. November 2nd, I taught a social media research boot camp for the Market Research Association at their first Outlook conference. And then on Wednesday, November 3rd, I moderated their keynote panel uh, where we brought in uh, some very big names in the social media analytics world, uh, four very well-known people. And I'll let let them introduce themselves because this is a recording of that panel. Uh, They're talking to market researchers, maybe half of whom are old-school market researchers, so you'll hear some tension in the Q&A that I think you'll find interesting. Um, A couple of things I want to mention. First, I was down at the Public Relations Society of America's international conference and uh, recorded a number of interviews with the incoming PRSA um, uh, chair-elect, Rosanna Fisk. That shows up now. Uh, Next week, we're going to have a show with uh, Rich Klitsky. He is the PRSA Technology Section Chair and a number of other people who presented there and some some other folks who were just around now. I didn't host a lot of those shows. Uh, I invited people in the community to guest host. So some people uh, guest hosted a number of shows, in which case they introduced themselves on the first show, but then not on the subsequent shows. And I might not be running the shows in order of, of which they were recorded. So if you hear somebody running an interview and you don't know who they are, it's because, well, uh, my mistake, I should have asked them to in- introduce themselves in every show, but, and I didn't. So if you want to know their name, just go to the show blog on the recordpodcast.com. you'll get their name there. You can get their uh, Twitter uh, handle. You can, you can follow their uh, you can subscribe to their blog uh, and get more information about them there. Um, but I was really uh, happy to have so, so many people participating uh, in the interviewing process at PRSA. If you're interested in public relations or the Public Relations Society of America, you'll want to download those shows. There's about uh, probably 15, 16 shows left that haven't been released. And the second thing I wanted to mention is I'm going down to Le Web in Paris uh, in December for my first time as an official conference blogger. So next week, um, the show is going to be a conference call with a number of official conference bloggers from the web talking about uh, the conference and what type of coverage we're going to be generating from the conference. And uh, you know what we're excited about seeing down there because the lineup was just introduced uh, for the conference. Um, confirmed to be on that episode are Andre Vascelleri, um, who many of you know because he's a frequent commenter on formatted release, and of course Miss Rogue Tara Hunt author of The Woofy Factor. So really excited to have them. And we'll also be having some special guests from other European countries that you may or may not know. So make sure you download the LeWeb Preview Podcast uh, next week. And now I'm going to play for you the uh, panel conversation uh, from the Market Research uh, Association's First Outlook Conference in Orlando on November 3rd. I hope you enjoy it.
2: This morning we've got um, a very distinguished panel and um, we're going to have uh, an exciting time. I think we've got um, four guests here uh, and we've got Eric Schwartzman. Eric, uh, most of you know from yesterday, many of you know from yesterday, Eric was, uh, was, was and is our social media guru. And um, Eric's going to lead um, what I think is going to be a real fascinating session. Uh, somebody told me uh, the other day there were 80 million tweets per day, uh, 80 million tweets, and uh, I, my first question was, does anyone read those? Um, and the second, of course, that wants to know is, what can you do with that data? Um, and that's just a piece of it, because there's a lot more, but um, Eric, I'll let you uh, run, and um, be fascinated. Thank you. Good morning,
3: everybody. Uh, can, you, can you hear me okay? On the sides there, can you hear me through the speakers, or it's just my voice is carrying Speakers on the corners there. Thank you very much. Uh, So my name is Eric Schwartzman. I uh, was honored to teach a uh, social media course here yesterday, and I'm honored to uh, moderate this distinguished panel this morning of experts in social media measurement. And I'd like to introduce them all to you. And uh, I'd like the format today to be an open conversation. So what I'm going to do is transport the mic around the room uh, to help let you guys ask questions. Um, What we have on the panel today is uh, not the marketing folks from the measurement platforms, but the people who actually built them, the people who actually know how they work, and the people who are going to be able to handle your tough questions on sentiment analysis, latency, data migration, data portability, all those things that people usually don't like to discuss in this type of a setting. They're here to discuss those things with you. Um, so, I'll introduce our experts from left to right. Actually, rather than that, I'm going to give each of them a minute or two just to tell us about their company, uh, what they do, and uh, we'll start with uh, Rob Key uh, on the end here. Uh, good
2: morning, mm-hmm. excuse me, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Rob Key, I'm the CEO and founder of Converse right? Salem. We're a full-service social media consultancy, which was an entity that probably didn't exist a few years ago. Um, what we do is work with very large, mostly enterprise brands to help them harness the value of the social intelligence and social media across organizations. And uh, we, we tend to work with we tend to work locally And uh, we uh, we're going to focus a little bit this morning on the social listening technology that we have. Um, Forrester recently named us as a category leader in, in it, along with Nielsen, uh, which is kind of represented here as well. And uh, thanks for having us here. Great. So I'm uh, Christopher Olberg. I'm the co-founder and uh, CEO of Recorded Future. Um,
4: generally a big believer that we have sort of the decade of data analysis in front of us, so I think that's pretty exciting. And Recorded Future is slightly different from some of the other sort of social, moni- social media monitoring uh, tools in that we're really built on this premise that the internet, if we organize it correctly, uh, should have predictive power. And uh, in that, we believe that if you want to understand that, you need to organize the internet temporally. So what we're trying to do is to organize everything we can find out on the web in a temporal fashion. Try to find things where Procter & Gamble is going to next week open up a new factory, where Merck in two weeks is going to uh, launch a new product, and in three weeks L'Oreal is doing a big initiative in China. We try to organize everything that mankind knows about the future, and to ourselves about the past, and then put that in a way that anybody can put any of this sort of information on a timeline, be that analytically or visually or whatever way you want to use it. This is heavily used now in the intelligence community as well as in, uh, uh, on Wall Street, where we've done some terrific things, and this just, just started uh, working in your sort of world. So this should be exciting.
5: Hello, everybody. My name is Valery Mesikov. I'm uh, with McKinsey and Company right now. Head of uh, Product and Business Development at um, our uh, new joint venture with Nielsen, uh, Nielsen McKinsey Insight, which is uh, aspiring to be an executive level uh, consulting company uh, focused on bringing insights from social media to um, businesses, uh, large brands, um, and really uh, bringing the impact from social media analytics to the organizations.
6: Uh, hello, I'm Barry DeVille, and uh, I'm with uh, SAS Institute of Cary, North Carolina. Many of you probably are familiar with SAS. We've been in business for 30-odd years now, and uh, kind of like SAS, uh, I've been around for a long time, and in fact, I used to present at, at these conferences about, well, a little over 10 years ago, and I've actually been a, a, a A vendor here in this conference uh, selling software that uh, our small company developed way back in the 1980s. Um, And that development gave me an experience with being both a small enterprise as well as being in the market research business. And uh, I thought I had retired when I moved to SAS, but I quickly got into data mining, which SAS got into uh, from the traditional statistics area, and then most recently text mining, and uh, now social media analytics. So uh, we're developing at SAS a social media analytics uh, product. We've been uh, rolling it out with some uh, customers. Uh, I won't mention any names here. And uh, we're also developing what's called the Social Media Conversation Center, which is uh, uh, the workflow management that goes over and above the social media or the measurement of the social media.
3: Great. Um, So I want you guys to start thinking about your questions.
6: And um, just to
3: kick things off, um, Rob, I interviewed you for my podcast uh, over a year ago, and we talked about sentiment uh, analysis. And uh, at the time, you said, uh, you know, by best best case, uh, industry averages are 60% accurate. Um, And you talked to me about this uh, pyramid of understanding data, primitive data analysis, where one layer was machine-based, another layer was human. Uh, But what I'd like to give the panel a chance to respond to is what use cases would value 60% accuracy on sentiment analysis? And let's start with you, Rob.
2: We're, it's a little challenging for us because we don't advocate um, purely automated algorithmic solutions. I mean, in reality, human language is really complicated. So we, we're we mining so much data in real time. We, we some, you had mentioned uh, 90 million tweets. We actually did a, a partnership with Twitter uh, a month ago for their full fire So we're now being pumped into our system, 90 million tweets in real time, into our systems and finding the meaning and the madness, which is what we're all trying to solve. What are the insights within that? Um, is really challenging. It's one of the great challenges facing the web. and I think that, you know, the folks who are sitting here are, are helping to solve something that's really, really profound. We, you know, and, but it's hard because human language changes and evolves and there's sarcasm and slang and all these things that make up what social media conversation is. Machines don't do a really good job of that. You know, they can do natural language processing and, and even machine learning, they can do certain things like I hate my cell phone, but it doesn't do very well with you know, my cell phone's a dog. You know, it's just, it's very difficult around these things. And and, and to the point that social media in many ways is, is a vehicle for language evolution, Google says that 20% of its searches in any particular month they've never seen before. There are a thousand words added to the Urban Dictionary every day. Um, it's very difficult for machines to kind of keep up with that. So our approach is there are two approaches. There's one. Let's try to use machines and algorithms to replace humans, so we can just kind of figure out what's going on out there. Or the approach that we take is use machines to assist humans in the analysis to do the heavy lifting, but let humans get to the part around uh, slang and sarcasm and the hardest surface things. Um, and also, when you're doing sentiment analysis there's one approach is let's take a record, which is basically a conversation and say this is generally good or generally bad, but in those records, that isn't the way people normally talk, they like packaging, but they don't like the warranty they wish that it was delivered quicker but when it came, it was packaged nicely, whatever, there are multiple levels of sentiment within conversations and if you do it on a record level it's generally good what does that really tell you? You know, maybe if I'm trying to do correlations between stock price and sentiment analysis, maybe that's okay. Uh, but if you're trying to find insights that can change a business, how do I change my products? How do I change our service? How do I make changes within my organization that are going to make us better? You need to get that level of granularity. And that's, a, that's where we excel. So we've, we've infused humans into the system, scaling it very significantly. And uh, because we believe that that level of intelligence is required to move businesses forward and... Um, there are others who have a different philosophy, so we're just going to use machines and push it forward. Uh, We've a lot of folks, a lot of PhDs working on this problem, and it's really hard. Uh, and I think we're quite a few years away from machines getting to the level where I feel it's going to move businesses forward, uh, being right the level of granular intelligence required to uh, bring competitive advantage.
6: Um, one thing I would say... I want, uh, I want to give everybody yeah. a chance to talk about sure. it. Sure. Uh, actually, Barry, jump in. Yeah, point one point? thing I'd say uh, to, your, to your question... Whatever the use case is today that could benefit from a 60-level percent of accuracy and sentiment, uh, it's bound to, and I don't want to be flip here, it's bound to change within the next 8 to 10 to 12 months. That's one of the things that we're all experiencing here is the ground that we're standing on is shifting much faster than... Anything that we've ever been familiar with before, just because of the volume of data that's being pumped around the Internet, as well as the machine capacity. Um, All of you are probably familiar with Moore's law, which indicated that this was back in the late 70s, that the computing power of computers would roughly double every year and the cost would uh, would be half. And that law has pretty much dominated uh, the collection and dissemination of data over the last 30 years, and it is not actually changing. We keep finding new ways to double that. And so what I'm getting to here is this current notion of what's called singularity. And if you want to get into uh, more detail with it, there's a website called singularity.org. And one of the things about singularity is uh, they're calculating the moment when the computing cycles available to uh, process data... Is actually greater than the computing cycles in people 's minds, so the concept behind uh, singularity is that pretty soon we 're going to be uh, coexisting the planet with a, an intelligence that 's smarter than we are, or at least has more processing cycles so uh, the, the the bottom line here is that computer computing is finding ways to do uh, speech processing that some claim are actually faster than what humans are able to do. So, for example, if there's a thousand new uh, words that are entering the urban vocabulary every day the best way to find out what those words mean is through you know essentially computing the meaning and so that means computing the sentiment so uh, that's really the point I wanted to make I I can talk about what we do here at SAS and and exactly how we break down sentiment into various dimensions and so on but I'm going to hand it over to some of the other panelists now
5: yeah well the problem is of course uh, you know the computing capacity is not the only thing that matters right it's uh, also about algorithms and figuring out right you can have a, an empty uh, empty computer without a code that doesn't doesn't work right so um, uh, the problem with Robo is basically an algorithmic problem and um, <clears throat> the way we are approaching it um, at nielsen McKinsey inside is um, Actually, similar conceptually to what uh, Rob mentioned, it's a combination of human and uh, technological um, uh, ability to um, discern the sentiment. But we uh, do um, separate uh, different use cases, and we apply different uh, mixes of human and computer um, analysis to different use cases. I'll give you an example. For example, we have a few um, PR agency clients who are actually uh, uh, quite content with 50, 60% accuracy if you give them very high recall, uh, which is you know give me every possible negative, uh, every uh, negative sentiment that exists out there, and I don't care if 50% of what you give me will be actually you know either neutral or uh, or even positive, right? I want to see all all the negative ones, and if you can. Um, through the technology, dial in the recall back uh, uh, up or, or down and uh, affect the accuracy, that's what I think um, uh, matters in this case. Right? So then you can adjust the mix of um, human processing and computer processing based on the use case. Right? So when you talk about another example, um, on the other extreme is the um, uh, metrics, uh, social media measurement. Uh, For example, you want to, um, uh, like one of the big um, uh, moves right now at uh, Nielsen McKinsey Insight is uh, trying to figure out what metrics we could use to measure social media with a precision that would be similar to what we have at Nielsen for, for example, for TV ratings, right? And can we use it as a currency, uh, uh, for example, to evaluate social media campaigns, things like that. For this, you need ultra precise uh, you can't go uh, if, if you base this metric on a center you can't go 50% accuracy but um, you can probably go down on the recall you don't need to detect every possible negative or positive message so the technology that allows you to dial down the recall dialing up the accuracy will be one that would work here and we're experimenting with all that
4: So, uh, first, just to echo Rob's comment that, yes, human language is very hard, and and we don't need to look at just new language showing up. We're doing all this analysis analysis of time and temporal ways of speaking, and it turns out that it's just wonderful in how many ways you can talk about next week in in English, and how you can trip up the semantics of that by just changing the most subtle little things. (coughs) We're developing a Chinese version and an Arabic version of what we're doing, uh, right now, and when you get into Chinese, all kinds of wonderful things happen on top of that. So so yes, it's very difficult, you don't need to just think about the, the new stuff. Now, at the same time, we've also, for example, yeah. spent an inordinate amount of time looking at a company conference called transcripts. so when CEOs and CFOs speak, and, and that's kind of a fun world, because there you can actually relate how people speak to stock prices and, and stock volatility. With immediate sort of feedback, you know, at least within the sort of hours time frame. So it actually turns out that there's many ways that CEOs speak as well. You know, you'd imagine that they all say it the, different, the same way, but it's different from industry to industry and it's different from, you know, company to company. But it actually turns out when you kind of aggregate and actually look for patterns of words that really have an impact, those are fewer. So, okay, we have a lot of different ways to speak, but there's actually a smaller set. That really are impactful across a large population. So that, I think that's a very important point. Now, I do want one thing that is important in all of this is that, you know, so it does 60% matter is that, yes, you know, if we we always have to be very worried about these sort of things to let the statisticians rule. Because the statisticians will give you these sort of, and here we have the sort of financial crisis to look to, where the plumps ran around on Wall Street and said that yes, we have a risk level of 0.82. Things are great. You go, okay, I'm glad you are giving me this answer, and then, you know, two months later, the whole thing blows up. Never accept those sort of answers, and, and I think, you know, in our world, this should be about empowering people like you to ask questions and not provide answers. Answers are easy, you know, you can throw, throw around answers. You want to enable people like you to ask questions. Like my background was in originally doing user interface design and how to let people think about doing data analysis. And it's all about empowering people to ask their own questions so you can kind of actually get to a level where you can get comfortable with data and and find the sort of answers that can be helpful to you. I'd be very wary when somebody tells you that, yes, our brand happiness is 0.823, and you're like, oh, yay. Kind of stay away from that, I'd say.
3: Uh, Are we ready to start taking questions, or should I throw out another one? Can I... Okay, I'll, I'll throw one more, and then I would really do appreciate it if you guys would start asking whatever
6: it is you want. Yeah, to Eric, um, one of the things that I would, I, would, I would try to leave the audience with based on, on this discussion is an understanding that there are two, two main ways of dealing with textual interpretation today. And one is uh, computing and the other one is um, natural language processing. And I think the kind of like the extreme case on computing meaning in text is probably found in Google. Um, And I'll just give you an example. In Google, when you type in a query, what you're seeing now is you're seeing a forward-looking algorithm that actually tries to guess what your query is Ahead of time, and it's also trying to guess ahead of time how you're actually meant to spell the query. And the reason, and how Google does that, and sometimes it may seem like it's got an uncanny ability to read your mind. It can spell better than you can, and it knows where you're trying to look better than you can. And the reason that Google can do that is because all of these uh, queries that we've been talking about are stored in a a Google server farm, which which is distributed locally. And the reason why it's distributed locally is because the computation of what you mean is done locally so that the uh, lines of communication are not a barrier to timely response. And uh, Google has, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to overstate the amount of data that it has. But what allows it to, uh, to do forward prediction on your query is that it has all two-way words in the uh, various languages, all three-way words, all four-way words. So as soon as it gets one word, it can uh, also map all miss- misspellings of that word as well as all misspellings of all adjacent words and so on and so forth. It's a really heavily computational approach. The other approach is uh, natural language processing, which does things like morphological analysis of various languages. So, um, so we say in English, uh, the red apple. Well, in other languages, it's the apple red. Uh, that's by, by extension. So there's a lot of natural language processing algorithms that can be used to interpret the meaning of text. And that's the other uh, kind of approach that's available today. So uh, I'm leaving that with you because at some point you may be interested in acquiring a, an approach or using an approach or, or researching uh, amongst yourselves what is the most appropriate approach for you. And both approaches are, are, are appropriate, different evaluation metrics, but uh, both are appropriate and possible for you. So I just wanted to leave you with that.
0: This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled.
2: B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. And that's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue.
0: Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. What about
3: um, non-text-based information? You know, we, we keep hearing about the explosion of online video... We know people uh, upload so many photos online, so people are communicating, not always through text. And there's a lot of predictions that say that, you know, video will do to the web what TV did to radio and print. So how do you get a picture or analyze what's going on with respect to non-text-based information?
5: Yeah, so this is, uh, as you can imagine, right, it's a pretty difficult uh, problem, right, to analyze the, uh, this information by itself. So the way we, uh, we are doing it for now, for example, is we're analyzing the textual information around the content um, uh, and in some cases just uh, converting the content to text. So we've done um, a number of projects, actually, with companies where we would uh, speech-to-text the customer customer service records right, and then we analyze the resulting text. So this is sort of a translation approach, right, you can't, probably can't do, uh, can't do it to video um, that successfully, uh, you can translate the text, but uh, in a lot of video, if you go on YouTube, it's, uh, it's just visual, right, so visual is very difficult to capture, so that, that we try to capture through the comments to the videos, which do reflect uh, the content, but not fully, right? so I, I don't think it's a solved problem yet.
2: No, we take a similar approach The one thing I'd say though is we have to also be aware that humans don't agree with each other a lot either. You know, and so you know, there's I to say you know 80 percent of the time humans will agree with each other, but not really. But I'll give you a real example of this: is that a lot of you, some of you may know the Motrin mom blow up debacle that kind of happened. When Motrin put out on a Friday in an ad that basically they were they're trying to be funny you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but said um, you, you, know, you can even wear your baby all week, you're sure you don't know, take Motrin, but you know it's kind of. They tried to do a little funny take on it, but it went really bad in the mom logosphere, and that's trouble. Don't mess with the mom blogosphere. But they uh, by Sunday they were apologizing and pulling the, the uh pulling the uh, creative. We actually did a little test and we took we took that same crate and sent it to ten moms who were involved, and said, you know, isn't this terrible? What are they thinking? And the ten moms are like, oh, not nine out of ten came back said, Yeah, somebody must have got fired over that. We sent it to ten other moms and who were their and said, Isn't this funny? And they're like, nine out of ten came back and said, Yeah, it's really pretty funny. And so You know, it's social framing, it's that concept of, you know, the machines and getting to the sentiment analysis and doing these other things, but at some point this goes through the prism of humans, and humans see things through the prism of their social networks and their friends and others, and the impact of that is we're just starting to really understand it in some ways. The social sciences really apply here in addition to text analytics and natural language processing and the other things as well. Um, is really profound. You know, think about that from a media perspective. Um, what does that really mean? And and how does that change the way that I perceive these conversations that are happening? Um, this, stuff gets, this stuff gets really complicated. I would say the one question, though, as we start talking about the science behind it, the question that I think is, we're hearing brands ask right now. I was actually one day with the CMO of a large beverage brand and said, all this stuff are talking about, 60, you know, the truth is, I care, but not really. What I want to know is how do I take this stuff and move my business forward? Because how do I actually apply this to the business use cases that I have, the key performance indicators that I have as a business? HP says it's saved $10 million from infusing social listening into its call centers, right? Because they're actually able to engage in the conversation for people to complain P&G says 50% of its innovation is coming from outside the company through forms of social listening. They have actually set up a website called InnoSentence where people can go and share ideas and thoughts. Um, so you're seeing use cases that change businesses, but the challenge has been linking the technology and all this cool stuff we're doing behind the scenes and wiring it together with the key performance indicators and the things that change a business. It's why Nielsen partnered with McKinsey. It's why we actually have a management consulting practice, which... Uh, Some ex-Accenture and other folks run, and and folks from IBM, who, because once you have this social intelligence flowing in the system, there's this moment of realization that says, I am not structured to do anything with this, because legal doesn't like this, Where's compliance What's the governance, who's trained, how does this stuff work? And so what I see, one of the most interesting things that I see happening is that this social intelligence is starting to morph into business transformation. And that's important, and I think we're, we're seeing that happen across the board right now. Is the, what do we do with it now
6: the conversation. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that I, I, I would say there, and I, I know that this is coming on the heels of I'm talking about compu- computation versus analytical approaches, but one of the significant things that has changed over the last uh, decade with the advent of uh, social media is the applicability of this theory that we've been developing over 30 years of social network analysis. And um, there's a lot that can be, quote, computed just by looking at the dynamics of of a social network. Uh, back in the early days when people began to look at social networks and they began to look at the direction of messages who sent a message to whom and who replied and so on and so forth is that they very quickly developed algorithms for figuring out who the in- influencer was in that, um, in that social network um, in terms of social media it's also possible to compute things like how many hops does a message go. So that tells you the reach of a message. And there's more fancy statistics that you can use that basically tries to assess the probability of where a message source came from. So this is all based on computation. So we can identify who the influencer of a group is. We can identify uh, key bridge infor- infor- individuals who uh, who actually serve as conduits of information between two otherwise uh, separate communities, and we can. Uh, communicate, we can also uh, calculate how far the communication goes through the network so in our social conversation center we're trying to identify high reach individuals because these are the people who we want to get to to forestall a bad uh, message going through their social network which could negatively impact our brand. And there's even the possibility of stretching back through time to see if uh, using conditional probabilities we can find out the source of a particular rumor or uh, bad review. So it may be the influencer who is rebroadcasting, if you like, a bad review, but that influencer may in fact have got that message from somebody in their social network who encountered a problem four or five messages before they actually broadcast it through the network. Um, So I just wanted to expose you to that particular way of looking at social networks.
3: And that's really uh, interesting, I think. Um, I'm involved with an organization called the Public Relations Society of America. And they put out last year the business case for public relations to try to equip the industry with like metrics to prove the business value. And uh, the business case for public relations argues that uh, you should be measuring outcomes, not outputs, and uh, it's interesting, Rob, you mentioned this idea that social networks organize around some sort of social hierarchy. There's this pop notion of popularity, and that's something I know you guys are looking at, Barry. You know, who are the connector nodes, the conduits are pushing it forward? But what's so interesting, um, particularly with an organization like Nielsen, you know, in addition to the social media data, you've got all this TV data. So what kind of intelligence can you get from comparing what's going on in the social network world with what people are watching or I guess in the case of uh, recorded future, you know, how can you, you mentioned this morning when we were talking breakfast, you know, you could plot this information on a timeline and assign some sort of temporal logic and glean insights that way. Um, uh, Larry, I want to give you a chance first to talk about comparing data sets.
5: Yeah, absolutely. We're actually doing quite a bit of that uh, at Nielsen. Um, so, as, as you all probably know, we have a huge number of the different data sets uh, ranging from the social media data set to the uh, online panel to uh, TV data to um, other media data, all the way down to the purchasing stream for uh, a few industries, right? Our home scan panel, for example. So, for a few clients um, uh, of NM Insight, Nielsen McKinsey Insight, we actually linked up a lot of these data sets. For example, We are, um, as Barry mentioned, um, you know, reach is one of the metrics that um, is very important uh, for marketers and we're using our panel to uh, understand for each specific um, piece of uh, social media content how many people actually were exposed to it, right? Then you combine that with the sentiment analysis, um, both from computing uh, perspective and human, and you understand uh, what was the net sentiment exposure. Uh, to your brand, uh, to the message around your brand in the blogosphere or social network. And it can actually, um, uh, we have, uh, in some of the industries, we have uh, been able to prove that the net sentiment uh, adjusted for reach actually um, uh, affects sales. So you you can see the difference in purchase intent depending on the exposure that people have which really makes case for, uh, for social media, I think, right? And uh, all the activities that we do today around social media. Um, we did a couple of studies um, that were uh, linking up the data from social media to, the, um, um, uh, to our purchase data. We uh, haven't done a lot of linkage to the TV data. Well, what we have uh, is uh, one of our service lines uh, which go uh, at executive level to the, um, to the organizations is marketing effectiveness. And um, while we're doing some tests, we found that there is a lot of correlation between uh, the success of the TV campaign measured in the traditional methods and the social media response. Right? So you can actually, with um, uh, quite a little delay, you can, see, uh, you, you can gauge how effective your TV campaign was by how people talk about it and how the conversation changes so there are a lot of uh, intermix between the two and last thing I want to mention and um, also wanted to um, kind of this audience to take out of this we believe that social media, social media in general is um, uh, very important not only within social media uh, ecosystem so to speak but also for uh, the entire marketing space and actually beyond that Right. so we we have service lines around the product development, um, uh, injecting the social media insight into product development around the customer service, and Rob mentioned about customer service as well. Um, we believe that social media insight is um, probably the one of the very few scalable ways to uh, reach um, uh, to discern consumer opinion, consumer and customer opinion at a large scale. Right, it's immediate. Uh, it, it it can be analyzed uh, through the combination of computing and uh, and human methods, and it can really be um, subdivided into uh, various uh, you know tabulations, permutations. If you have the right technology.
4: So the sort of things that we kind of following up on Eric's point there. So as we lay out things over time, it turns out that you can start looking at all kinds of interesting things. You may want to look at, uh, for example, what does the world think about when uh, iPhone is going to shop on Verizon and then kind of aggregate that information together or and then say, you know, who actually provides the sort of turning points where that information shifts? So that particular one is kind of, kind of being a mess. It was thought of 11 and then it was going to be late 10 and then 12 and, you know, back and forth sort of thing. And, and then you might say, okay, so who is actually the people who are showing up here and actually turning that information around and shifting, you know, the time frame to be XYZ? And then, you know, looking at over a long period of time, who is the most consistent sort of predictor when products are going to be launched? Or take a step back from that, when are typically product launched? Or when does Unilever typically launch products? Or if I'm an outsider, I'm maybe I'm an Android uh, 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 product house of some sort, and I'm, I want to find a gap in the Android product schedule. So again, you know, the sort of questions that we can ask here are much, you know, are much different from this sort of regular. Are, are customers happy or not? There's many other ways that you can actually look at the sort of information you can gain from the, the you know, call it the social media space or the internet as, as as a whole. So you know, just think a little bit beyond this sort of sentiment <coughs> angle. I'd like to leave with you.
3: Good. Um, yeah, let's open it up for questions. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to wait one moment so you have the mic. And if you would, please tell us who you are and who you're
7: with. Uh, my name is Annie Pettit. I'm from Congress Strategies. Um, earlier this year, Nielsen and Buzzmetrics hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal when um, they accessed a password-protected social media website called Patients Like Me to scrape data about uh, personal diseases, medications, etc., uh, for social media research purposes. Uh, personally, I was quite appalled at the situation just because any market research standards or ethics guides that I look at says that the requested privacy and respect for exclusion from research should always be respected. So the fact that, um, this password protected data was accessed just boggled my mind at how that could happen. So what I would like to know first is basically your comment on that situation as well as have you read the MRA guidelines that were released last week and do you plan to endorse those guidelines?
5: So um, I'll try to respond to all the points here. Um, yeah, we were uh, appalled at this too. Um, the uh, reality of the situation was that uh, you know, some of the policies that we had um, from the legacy situation uh, as you remember Buzzmetrics is a combination of companies and back uh, five six years ago the policies were written and uh, some of them were not uh, really reviewed right so that that's the gen- uh, genesis of uh, of the situation there it affects um, uh, the issue here affects maybe half a percent of um, the total data that we uh, we were collecting and we've immediately stopped um, all the uh, collection from the sites like this, right? Uh, the the point is that you know we were uh, uh, due to uh, the uh, policies that uh, were established six six seven years ago. We were not aware that uh, some of these sites are uh, <laughs> violating the terms of agreement, and we're definitely protected? we're definitely not doing. Sorry, you weren't aware that they were password protected when you obtained the password to scrape the data um, no I don't believe so I don't believe so so
7: someone had to get the password to get in there to get the data that's that's my only point it just makes me a little nervous then there was no
4: password on that site I am you know the uh, you, we could get yeah, unless patients like me has changed that was over scraped. that
7: mm-hmm. that information was password protected the blog is available I checked myself <laughs> but the, uh, the forms the questions and answers inside that are work,
2: fast if I, if I could just jump in, because I think I think what we see happening is, is an issue you bring bringing up is something that we as an industry have to address, because just like in a lot of industries, there's black hat and white hat, like if anybody goes to search engine optimization world, there are folks who are doing all kinds of things that are, I don't put Nielsen in that category, I've always felt that they were, in my experience, and I know John, folks for originally plus metrics, I think that we have to do, there are, two, there are two things that are happening, I think that for me the bright line is if you're in a public conversation area, which is, you know, if you're on Twitter and if you're in these venues, then the public information, et cetera, then um, that's what we mind. If it's a private area, then you do it within the terms of service if you do it at all. And, you know, even though they're technically you can crawl through a lot of these things and capture that information. I think that there's... And then it comes to the issue of consumer perception. Okay, do, am I expecting... Um, do I, am I aware when I'm in Twitter or I'm speaking in these venues that people are listening to me? Well, we actually have two groups. We sometimes get folks who say... Hey, Ford, for example, I'm, I'm having a problem. Um, are you listening? There's a, there's a consumer expectation that's beginning that companies are listening to you and they want to have things solved in that environment. You, with, you have another group, which is kind of more the old, the old vanguard group, or the old uh, kind of legacy groups are kind of like, you know, they'll send something and they'll be like, oh my goodness, you were listening. How could you possibly have them? Are well, you speaking in a public conversation area? Are you know, you're speaking? So, so but... There, there has to be, in my mind, some consumer education around this issue, as you know, in recognition and recognition around uh, standards around what should be mined and what what's not mine. How you use data, especially when dealing with things like uh, pharmaceutical issues and, and, and disease conditions. And so, um, so it's good it's a good conversation to have. I think there's a right way to do it and a, and a bad way to do it, and I think it's important for us to get ahead of it uh, because. Uh, you know, we certainly want to make sure that we're doing this stuff the right way because I think all of this data, in my experience, has been used with better products and better services. It hasn't been used for nefarious reasons. But I think it could be, be a So um, that's the direction we're heading in. So those sort of guidelines that you just put up there, they're, they're great,
4: obviously. Now, you, have, you know, there's a lot of subtleties to this. You have this sort of, the, you think of, uh, this the guy who, Robert Murdoch, who, who run, runs a whole sort of media properties around the world. He likes to get up there and yell at Google News for scraping his news sites and publicly saying this is terrible that they're doing this. Then it turns out that nobody really knows that every, every night he sends them gigabytes of data on his own to make sure that they index all of it. So there's a lot of people who make big claims on this. So I've certainly met the brothers behind uh, patients like me, uh, or at least one of them. And he's, you know, their whole site is based on the information that's out there. Probably. Now, if if somebody went behind a password, bad, you know, of course you shouldn't do that. Because the simple premise of the Internet is that there's this sort of robots.txt sort of thing, and it's very simple. Robert Murdoch can make sure that none of his new sites are indexed by anything in 0.2 seconds. He just says, stay out of here. Boom, nobody can get there. Likewise, if if patients like me, guys, who didn't want people to scrape it, were even wanted it to be indexed by Google, they can stop that in 0.2 seconds. But I bet you that the brothers behind it, they want it to be indexed by Google. So, so whereas I agree that, you know, if there's content you know that is clearly stopped, you know, nobody should get to it. But then at the same time, there's also a lot of people out there on the Internet who likes to kind of make one public statement, but in reality, totally want their content to be accessible. And, and actually, you should go read the terms of use of patients like me, unless it's changed over the last year, the whole premise is that every piece of information that people put there about their chronic diseases is supposed to be public. That's the, the sort of thing, you know, that's their premise. Now, I happen to be, believe in that very case, those brothers actually want to aggregate that data and sell it to pharmaceutical companies themselves. And that's probably the most probable reason they were very upset.
6: Yeah, I might also uh, add here that... Um There's been a a very uh, far-reaching investigation of privacy on the web uh, undertaken by the Wall Street Journal. And um, a couple of the things that they point out in the earlier articles, this is an ongoing series, is the existence of uh, both cookies um, on the user machine which uh, save things like passwords when the user logs on to a given website, and which are tracked by um, various firms that try to establish the cross-relationships of one user on one site versus one user on another site. And also the um, use of what are called beacons, which are a different way of capturing uh, Private personal user information. And my hat's off to Wall Street Journal because recently they um, intercepted the uh, material that was published by Facebook based on the Facebook data that applied to four or five of the uh, partner sites which were nominally um, not available publicly, but which were nevertheless obtained by the Wall Street Journal investigation when it looked at the content of the data sets of these uh, three or four partners of Facebook. So Wall Street Journal publishes the, uh, the results, and uh, pretty soon uh, Facebook is... Uh, is shutting down that, that part of their data access. So it's g- kind of like the old story. You know, the, uh, the cost of democracy is eternal vigilance.
2: I, that's one small point on this. It, I, I think it's just really, we need to approach this topic really intelligently because what there's a logic flow that, that's analogous to this. The, uh, in the word-mouth marketing space, What happened was there were some companies out there who were paying people to tweet, and they they still do. They'll go in and say, hey, this is a wonderful product. You know, they were doing, they they were being paid for positive reviews. Bad. Similar to the types of stuff we're talking here. So the FTC comes in and says, okay, we're going to put guidelines in place. Meaning, the guidelines are that... You brand are if anybody is saying something positively about you out there, and you have any commercial relationship with them, you are responsible for them to ensure that they're doing uh, dis- disclosing that and, and they're disclosing that relationship. Um, so you are in a meeting with P and G and the FTC, and P and G says, "What does a commercial relationship mean? Does, it, does giving a coupon mean a commercial relationship?" And the response was, "It depends. It could be." So now you're asking a company the size like P&G to police everybody who's having a conversation to see if anybody has a commercial relationship for anybody who's saying something positive about you. And so good intentions, really bad execution. You just simply can't do it. And so I think in this space, too, I think we need to start to put some guidelines around this. I think we have to be really smart about it because we don't want to kill the power of the positive the positive impact this is happening in companies. And I think that so, you know, if we don't get ahead of it, you'll have to see some more of these stories happen and regulation will come in and you know the and it might not be completely thought through and it'll help kill something that I think is having a really positive impact on society and governance and organizations and others. So I just want us to be really smart about this when we move forward. So.
0: Since 2005, On the Record Online has been podcasting live from conferences and trade shows where thought leaders discuss the impact of technology on the world of communications. To have On the Record Online podcast live at your next event, send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at On the Record.
8: Management council, and I have a couple of observations. God, I don't really know where to begin here. It's, if you listen to the level of discussion that we're having, and if I was smart enough, as perhaps machines are, to try to interpret and build a world a word cloud around all the words that we use, what you're using, what we're using right now, they're they're less about conceptually, in, in my opinion, what we do for a living. That is collectively. That is. Market and advertising research, and more about computing, and and that's not that that observation is not meant as a criticism. It's it's meant to say that the vocabulary and the language and the ontology of what's happened in, in the industry as a result of what you're doing and others are doing has changed everything. So. That's, that's a question, and <clears throat> just as an aside, I think you deflected her question a little bit, so I haven't gotten a complete fair, in my mind, answer to that, because I haven't heard anybody on the record say that we're not going to violate password principles. Um, but that's another conversation. The, the question I have to ask is twofold, I guess. The first is, if you increase the predictive capability of the work that you're doing in terms of the quote-unquote sentiment analysis um, to 80%. How long before it, it obviates the need for for what collectively we do that is market and advertising research? So how long will that be? So if it's at 60, my guess is that's not sufficient to be predictably good for most people's reasons. It depends, I guess. So, so the first thing is, so, so how long before the, for instance, the, the uh, predictive ability gets to 80%? In which case, what is the necessity? True, truly, I'm going to ask ourselves: what is the necessity for marketing and advertising research if sentiment analysis or whatever Android type of words you, you're using to describe this process, which I yet, yet completely understand, even though I've been listening. So, so, that's, I guess, the first question. second question is, how do you apply our basic principles, which we more or less live by, which is the statistical reliability and the representativeness of a sample unit to the general population, where we can then calculate errors and uh, response errors and um, the other two types of errors that I've forgotten, that some of us think would say you're cool. <laughs> but anyway, the, 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 do you, if you understand the nature of my question, I think it's not only me who is interested in the answer, but I, I'd be willing to listen. I'm still
2: fearful. Real quick, let me just answer a few things real quick, you know, them a colleagues and others. I think very clearly anybody who's a leader in this industry is not going to mine a password-protected site without sites with the permission of the owner. They're simply not going to do it. I don't, I don't think anybody at that level will do that. And then We certainly don't. The second thing is humans are absolutely essential. I mean, I love the Henry Ford quote that I use a lot, which is, if I listened to my customers, they would have told me they wanted a faster horse, right? So we have all this data. How do we simply interpret and find the insights to be able to change businesses? Humans need to be involved. I think the business, I think what, what market research folks are more important than ever to do that interpretation, to find the black swans, to find all these things that are out there, the, the things that you don't expect, to change a business, to tell the narrative, to tell the story. There's simply much more robust intelligence that you have in real time to be able to start to do that analysis. And, but from changing that intelligence and moving it into a business to how you apply it. Humans can never be taken out of that process, from my point of view. So I think it's a really exciting time for market research. The question for market research is, how do I expand what I do internally to think about my narrow use, case, use cases that I sometimes serve to thinking about enterprise? All these different use cases internally where this intelligence can be used. And how do I start to talk with other folks in the organization? Because the folks in R&D aren't staying up at night thinking the social intelligence can help me make my products better. You know, you can reach out to them and start having conversations within organizations. So
4: that's my quick take yeah, so I'll, I'll agree, and you could probably be even stronger on the password point of view and say that anybody who's serious about this would not even try to break the terms of use, even in the world where most people actually leave things open, but they do put terms of use that might say, you look, you should not use this to do X. Anybody who's serious is not going to do X because that's you know that's a pretty short-sighted approach. Now, when it comes to you know the role of market research in all this, you know new media shows up. Uh, you know, at some sort of uh, uh, you know time periods, and you know whether it's radio or TV or whatever you know sort of new things would, have come along. Uh, you could ask yourselves: Is it the responsibility of the new media or the new medium or whatever you want to call it, or you know, to, to uh, come up with new ways or, or kind of pull you guys in, or is it the responsibility of observers or market researchers of that to learn the new media? You can imagine what my answer is. It's the responsibility of you, to, you, know, you as an individual, to get to know this, you know, call it new world if you want. If I, you know, I've hired awesome statisticians into my company who are the most sort of conservative statisticians on the planet Earth, but they're thrilled with the sort of data that they can work with now. You know, that. that, so, okay, so maybe it's less structured data than it was before, so let's think about how we deal with unstructured data. Uh, Maybe the data is harder to normalize if I have a temporal sort of sequence of things that I've, you know, of media, some view of media over the last decade, and, and suddenly Twitter shows up and drowns the rest from a volume point of view. How do I normalize that over time? Very interesting sort of question to deal with. And I could say, yeah, this is crap. I should just keep doing my survey because of my survey that I've done for 50 years. I can keep constant. That's a pretty terrible answer. And if I was a market research guy, I would say, I'm going to have to learn how to think about normalizing data when new aspects of of, uh, of, uh, of the whole medium comes along. I think as a statistician, you know, Hal Varian, the chief economist at Google, says that You know, the the data analysis is going to be the most sexy profession over the next decade now. That's a prediction, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe. But it's pretty damn exciting. I'm I'm not a statistician, I'm a computer scientist by background, but I love data. And this is going to get very exciting. And if I were you guys in the room, get on the train. You know, to try to fight that back, and I can just imagine somebody, like, look, we should keep doing it, exactly with the way we've done it. Number two, just because we think about statistics in a certain way, we should not try to work with, you know, X, Y, Z. That's a terrible way of thinking about it. So, get excited.
6: Yeah, one one of the things I'd say, like maybe a lot of you in the room, um, when I started uh, collecting data, we did um, observational studies from behind a mirror, one-way mirror, or perhaps we did uh, surveys where we you know might actually physically go to somebody 's door and knock on the door and, 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 and basically, back then, there were a lot of people at home, so typically we had a, somebody to do a survey with and uh, one of the things that uh, that we used back then was this whole concept of having a representative sample of the universe that we were purporting to measure so that we could make informed inferences about what was going on in that universe. And we've developed a lot of very good methods to enable us to do that, and we found out, you know, under certain circumstances we can do a 1% sample, or in other circumstances even if we have a 100% sample it doesn't seem to do us much good. Now, um, then we had a paradigm shift with the advent of telephone surveys and so on and so forth. And what's happened over the lo- really over the last five years is that social media has taken off. And what's happened is that it's taken off in a particular subsegment of our population, which may or may not be relevant to... Um, Uh, Any market researcher in this audience, I mean, if you wanted to do market research on, uh, say, uh, 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 baby boomer emptiness, mothers then, you know, two or three years ago, the social media space would not have been a good place to do that work. Now, that's changing. Uh, This is a uh, phenomenon which is beginning to creep into, you know, the higher deciles of our population. And it's now moving into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's going to be be pervasive. And with the um, increasing pervasiveness of mobile devices um uh, which are which have reached something like seventy percent of the world's population and are on track to hit ninety to one hundred percent within the next decade we're going to see people uh, engage in social media real time uh, 24/ seven using their mobile devices so the coverage is going to get very good. Um, does that mean that you uh, want to Tap into social media as a data source that is, quote, representative of the universe that you want to be uh, looking at in order to make, uh, in order to make uh, informed uh, decisions and opinions and inferences about the universe that you've been commissioned to reflect, that's another question. That's a question that you will have to revisit many times because the, uh, the phenomenon of social media is changing uh, almost weekly, if not more, more frequently. So it's going to become a more and more potent uh, source of data for you. And uh, just rolling back the, the timeline again, when, when, when I started, when a lot of you started, and when you're still working now, if you do a self-administered survey or something like that, what you find is that there are a lot of open-ended comments. You know, we used to talk about the pervasiveness of other, the other category. With social with social media, it's uh, it's actually the other way around from what we typically uh, we're typically used to working with. It's it's pretty much all other now, and whenever we can get uh, anything that looks like a social socio demographic, then we run the risk of of, of invading the person uh, the privacy guidelines that we were just talking about. Um, but the, uh, the big uh, new lever that we have to work with with data now is the, uh, is the parallel rise of text analytics that have paralleled the development of social media. Uh, text analytics has kept step by step with social media over the last five years. Five years ago, nobody would have tried to do sentiment analysis, but we're doing it now, uh, and we operationalize the um, measurement of sentiment very much the way that we've operationalized sentiment in the past. We've, uh, we've outlined different uh, dimensions of sentiment, and we've tried to uh, to apply measurement on those various dimensions, typically in some kind of... Uh, Likert scale kind of fashion and then we sum up across all of those dimensions and that gives us our inference and in what the sentiment is for the particular product that we're dealing with and that's uh, being done today with, uh, with text analytics.
5: Now in the first part of your question I just wanted to reiterate my earlier points on uh, you know uh, we believe that social media is uh, uh, probably the only or one of the very few sources of scalable insight about the consumers and it's real time, right? So uh, I would look look at it as a, an incredible tool in your arsenal of uh, learning about what customers, consumers really think, right? And uh, we've actually shown we worked with a few uh, CPG companies, uh, large CPG brands, and we've shown that you can get quite complementary insights from uh, social media to the traditional research. Uh, we've done both um, uh, traditional focus groups, surveys, and social media analytics in those studies. And you can see the different types of insights coming out of different types of uh, of research, right? Because the um, uh, different types of research map into different steps of the uh, consumer purchasing cycle. And you can see that blogs, for example, they're mostly... Uh, applicable to the active what we call active evaluation stage when people already are informed about brands but they're trying to figure out what to buy versus product reviews they're in different uh, part of the cycle and uh, when you do a survey you can uh, pinpoint the part of the cycle as as you wish right so you you should just look at this as a um, as one of the tools in your arsenal a very powerful tool and uh, there are a lot of tools right now that um, allow you to make sense out of that data on the second part of the question, uh, this is this is a really good one, right? So um, uh, how representative are the people who are talking about my brand out there, how representative they are of the universe of my customers? This is a real statistical question. So what we are trying to do um, uh, at this point at Nielsen is um, using our panel data, uh, which is represent online panel, which is representative to uh, rescale some of these things, uh, the social conversations to the um, uh, overall population, to the generalized population. Um, uh, We're also trying to um, uh, take into account um, not only who talks, but also who listens and see if uh, the reach of your message is uh, also mapped into a representative audience. Right, which also matters right so there, there is uh, there is quite a bit of research going in in that space it's uh, fairly fairly new as Barry mentioned right it 's fairly new media and lastly I wanted to close on the password thing um, so I want to make it absolutely uh, clear that nielsen uh, Nielsen McKinsey aside does not uh, gather any password protected information right now and we've uh, uh, Eliminated all the uh, legacy policies that uh, uh, that we had on that side um, We actually um, even back to the stronger definition of the uh, Terms of use we are working with a, uh, quite a few uh, uh, Data sources that we have on the commercial basis um, Just so uh, that we are double sure that we're not violating uh, terms of use. So there are a few sites that uh, You know, they have public information out there and Google indexes them, uh, but we still have commercial relationships with them to access their data.
3: I want to uh, try to squeeze one more question in, and then we want to leave time for you to uh, spend some time with the exhibitors here who have some of the products that that will be helpful to you. Um, So I'm going to turn the mic over uh, for one last question. This actually isn't a question, uh, but um,
2: (laughs) since we have a big range of researchers, there are many people in this room. Um, our role in all of this is we capture the sensitivities of, of human behavior, the inappropriate laughter, uh, body language, uh, sarcastic tones and voice. And I think, um, I speak for myself, I hope for other people, we're trying to understand when a Fortune 25 company has an ideation session for a new product, and we get involved when...
0: Young Rubicam shows up with uh, storyboards for uh, initial testing of creative platform. We're trying to understand, or at least I am, your role in all of this, so to speak. I wasn't at Eric's session yesterday, I was in
2: another session. But in my mind, there's a roadmap for social media, and, and I'm assuming, from listening to everyone, that you're involved everything from the first load of bricks all the way down to the media buy, it sounds like. And uh, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, it's a little bit and just on statistical piece too, I mean to your point, you know, sometimes it's not how many people are talking about something, it's about the power of the insight. even if it's only 20 or 30 people. I was at a, speaking at a conference last week where Kodak was speaking, and they said, you know, they make changes on their products. Sometimes there are only 50 people saying, wouldn't cool you guys did this? That's enough to change a product. So, I'd say social intelligence is at the way in the front end of that early conception, the big kind of you know blue sky, all those white place white spaces, and then all the way through the system and to the point where how people are reacting to it, etc. And my final point in all this too is that we talk about some science and the technology and social media, and I can't wait for the term to go away because all of this is just becoming like oxygen. But this, to me, this is the evolution of human communication. I mean, this is big, and this isn't going away, and this is global, and this is. You know, the fastest growing part of Twitter is in Tokyo, alright? So, like, we're binding cultures and everything together. And so, the science behind this is, incre- it, is is great. I think the limitations are only by our imagination. It's proliferating every day of how you can use this. I think, it, you know, you all can think creatively about places you can serve food throughout the entire system. I don't think it's one place. It's kind of just woven throughout. And I think it's a really exciting time, so, you know. I think, you know, uh, I had this
4: opportunity back, I think it was in 1996, I presented the, uh, the American Statistical Association and talked about data visualization, basically in front of a very conservative crowd, and I showed them the sort of visualizations of data. And, you know, you can imagine, 80% of them, like, you can't claim that that's an outlier, you know, that all of that sort of stuff going on. And, you know, and I was like, look, guys, here you now have the opportunity to engage people in data and get really excited. You're going to get people to ask you to do more than do counts. You're going to actually get people to reason and get excited about data. So I think you guys you know, could, can be in that same sort of opportunity here, where the data sets and the ability to get under the skin of, of people is going to be at a whole different level going forward. So if I were you, I'd try to make myself a person who engages in all of that rather than seeing this as something that is problematic. This, is, this should be a great time to be able to apply some rigor and some good thinking to how to harness this in the best of way so let's you know, give say, have fun let's, let's give go. our other two panelists a chance to make a closing
3: statement
6: Oh, uh, you know the statements that are over here are just like overwhelming it's full of optimism and I think it's just absolutely great
5: yeah and uh, Leslie back to your statement right um, uh, we feel that the social media inside or rather Consumer-generated insight, right, uh, permits all the functions in the organization, or should permit all the functions in the organization. The uh, marketing is a, a natural starting point. Is uh, you know, if you talk to people a couple of years ago, social media is associated immediately. You, you come up with the uh, social media marketing. Well, we we are advocating the point of view that it's not not anymore, just social media marketing. It's social media insights or consumer-generated insights plugged into marketing as marketing effectiveness tools, plugged into product development uh, throughout the cycle, plugged into customer service, uh, consumer experience throughout the cycle, and other functions. You can, um, uh, we, we've done a few um, uh, studies on the HR. What's your reputation among potential employees? Uh, how does it affect your uh, offer acceptance? Things like that. Right, so you can think through, uh, throughout the whole um, value chain of the enterprise, and everywhere you can apply the concepts that we're discussing here. It's just that the marketing is a natural starting point, but it is, it is diffusing all over.
3: Well, with that, uh, I'd like to thank our panelists for making the trip down here. until 1045, uh, so you can spend some time with
0: the exhibitors. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at